Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In other words, who can know it? Who can know their own heart? I want to suggest that our capacity for deceit is ready to fool us at just about any moment. But even more, who can know someone else's heart? Are you sure? Most of us think we know Jesus, and therefore we think we know who God is. However, this series is about looking again and knowing the heart of Jesus Christ. What is most natural to him? To his disposition? What comes out of him? His inner being, most instinctively. And here's the point. At a deep level, do we tend to project our own heart onto him? And as a consequence, make him less than trustworthy. You see, in all the Gospels, there are 89 chapters in total, if you add up Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and do the math. But there's only one passage that tells us about Jesus' heart in the way that Suzanne described, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What's the passage tell us about him when we probe into the heart of Christ? That is, what do we find? And can we allow Jesus to speak for himself and not allow so much allow our projections of who we might think he is and read it into him? Taking the Gospels at face value, the text says he is gentle and lowly. And when the Bible says in his heart, it's talking about his very center, his core, the source, the driver of all of what we say and do comes from our heart. It is the central processing unit of a human being. So what does the passage mean by gentle and lowly, or the NIV, gentle and humble? First, I'd suggest it's not two ideas, but one, one overarching and dirt, deeply personal quality of our God. That word gentle, it's the same word as the word meek in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or referencing Jesus' lowly or gentle posture when he rides in on a donkey, taken from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. It referenced his gentleness in heart. You see, our book, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, makes a good observation 
To say that Jesus is lowly says that God is accessible, that he is approachable. So listen to this line from the reading. He says this, For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, if this is true, then we pause this morning to let that truth soak in. It raises a lot of questions about the things we do and the way we see and our hesitancy and our reluctance and our stubbornness to come to you. Forgive us. Help us. Amen. You see, no one is unqualified to come to him. He doesn't turn anybody away. In fact, there is only one qualification, and it's surprising. It's likely not what you might think. The qualification for coming to Jesus, according to this passage, is being weary and burdened. This is who he calls. This is who he serves. And this is who his ministry is for. Now, as I was reading through this, I was recalled my dad, who owned his own construction business, and was always dirty by the end of the day. I think he kind of liked it, to be honest. He just liked to be dirty. From being down in a ditch, or somehow saturated with diesel fuel, or greasy from changing a part on a piece of equipment, he was filthy, he was sweaty, he was dirty. And mom, she had a special place in the house for him to clean up. And he would take a brush and he would clean under his nails. And he had some hand cleaner. Now, I don't know if anybody remembers this and if it's still being used. Maybe it is. But it was called Gojo Hand Cleaner. And uh, he would shower and then he would get himself cleaned up. And then he would go to a library board meeting because he was on the library board. And he would go to a children's home board meeting because he was on a, the children's board with doctors and lawyers and administrators. But here's my point this morning. Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up. He doesn't say, you need to get unburdened before coming to me. Sometimes, even as we start worship, we say something like this. 
Now put aside all your worldly thoughts and worries, all your worldly concerns, because it's time to worship. We have good intentions when we say this. We don't want our minds to be somewhere else when they're supposed to be here, but maybe the right message is your burdens, your tiredness, your stress, your dirt, your sin, it qualifies you to come to meet with God this morning. So bring it on. So whether you labor like a construction worker, work and sweat and struggle, or whether you are burdened, in other words, to be labor and burdened, I think there may be two different ideas. One is something we're always doing, we're pushing, we're pressing. The other is something that's happening to us. And it's always happening, both of those. Where it's something beyond our control, where we see ourselves as burdened because of something traumatic or something stressful or, or a lifetime of microaggressions has worn you razor thin, here's the point. Jesus is ready for you to come to him to find rest. As Keaton has already pointed out this morning. Hear this, he doesn't simply meet us in our place of need. As Ortland points out, he lives in our place of need. In the cellar of our heart, in the sewer, in the alley, in your delusions, it is true and good that he lives there. You see, our heart is conditioned by our flesh, by our sinful nature, and we cannot escape it. There are certain spoken and unspoken assumptions that we might have about how life works. Have you ever thought yourself and thought this way? We think maybe the wealthier a person is, the more that they tend to look down on those of us who are poor. Or the prettier a person is, the more they are repulsed by the homely among us. So we think that Jesus is the same way. He is high and holy and pure and right and true and good. And I'm rotten to the core of the apple. Sometimes I'm just downright pathetic. And so we say, well, sure, Jesus comes close to us, but somehow all the while when he comes close to us, he's holding his nose. And so we often continue with what we think we know, that he is here for those who have cleaned up their lives or those who have a deep prayer life, or those who don't struggle so much, or those who are just good folks. But the deep truth of this passage 
is that he is most of all gentle and lowly. And he will touch and hug grubby, dirty sinners. He will hold you and he will not let you go. And he will touch and hold grieving, emotionally damaged sufferers, and he'll hold them tight and not let them go. So I don't care how ugly or dirty or repulsive you might feel, what sin is again nipping at your heels like the neighbor's dog, nor what unimaginable blow, unimaginable blow has struck you, the truth is Jesus can't wait to embrace you. He wants you to desperately grow and change. There's no doubt about it. He doesn't want you to stay where you are. He wants repentance. He wants you to change your mind about things. He wants you to give up bad behaviors. He wants true change. He wants holiness from you. But first, he receives you as you are and will not let you go. Now, I saw it many years ago so vividly when I was in Calcutta at uh, Mother Teresa's home for the deaf and dying. It created an image for me that I've carried with me for many, many years because I watched these upper middle-class women who were born into Hindu families who thought they were far better than other people and too good to stoop for others, who had been won by Jesus. And in his likeness, they took the dying, broken dregs of Calcutta off the street. And when they did that, they brought them in to this, this little facility to nurse them and bathe them and feed them and pray for them and, and, and allow them, holding them, and allow them as they are to die with dignity. And I want to suggest that this is why we read the Bible. Why we need to reflect and to ponder, and that's what this series is about. It'll take some reflection and some meditation. I would add, this is why we need the church, why we need brothers and sisters, because what I'm trying to say is by our own nature, on our own, we will not believe this about God. We say to ourselves at some level, He cannot be that good. 
too good to be true. In fact, on some level we do, we really don't believe it. We're hard on people who screw up. We're hard on ourselves when we screw up. And as Dane Ortland in the book, he said it this way, our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. This is why we need to reread the scripture again because scripture destroys our misunderstandings and it clarifies our sorry predispositions and again to quote Ortland it startles us with one whose infinitude of perfections is matched by his infinitude of gentleness. So this series and the lesson is challenging us to see Jesus. And it's a lifelong work. To see him not as we might think we should see him, but as he really is. And the gift, the challenge, and the awaiting transformation is for you to believe about Christ what he, in fact, already knows about himself. So here's the outcome for the entire series, and I would say for your entire life. May your deepest mental images of Jesus align more fully with who he really is. In other words, if you were asked to say one thing about Jesus, you would honor his own teaching by saying what he said. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. There's one response to your filth and to your grime and to your self-loathing and to your anxiety and to your fears and to your disappointments and to your deepest insecurities. And Jesus tells us what it is in this passage. Come to me. And I'll give you rest. That's the invitation. Come to him. Whether the very first time or the 10,000th time, come as you are Well, it's too good to be true. Yes, 
That is the invitation of the heart of the true Jesus. Will you continue with me in the readings this week as we allow God to dwell in our hearts by faith?